Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. What's up, Simon? Hello. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers, a podcast of wisdom, thoughts and folk and fairy tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. I decided to travel around the country when I could to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling, people who, for the work they travel about, telling myths and legends, folk and fairy tales. Each storyteller shares their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom and sometimes a story or two. I'm glad you're here. I've bumped into Lorna here and there but got to hear her stories and play her harp at Sharing the Fire years ago. I was able to invite her to this podcast to talk about stories, of course, because I loved what she did. Lorna is an award-winning storyteller and is the National Storytelling Network's Oracle Award for Service. Please enjoy Conversations with Lorna Zanota. Lorna, thank you so much indeed for being part of my podcast, Conversations with Storytellers. We've, we've bumped into each other a number of times over the years. And um, I'm always impressed with your, your talent and skill, not just at storytelling, but also your musical skills as well. Thank you so much indeed for joining the show. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. No, no, it's, that's an, that was an easy ask. <laughs> no, it's, it's mutual, mutual appreciation here. So. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So um, how, how did you get into storytelling? Uh, you, you know I'm a storyteller, so it's going to be a long story. But you can yes. me off anytime you need to. <laughs> no. Um, you know, I, I did not grow up in a rich storytelling environment um, in terms of the way we think of storytelling today. You know, some people uh, grew up on the laps of people at, at Jonesboro, for instance. Other people grew up in the mountains where storytelling was very rich. Um, I did not, but what's interesting to me is now looking back, I realize that my father was always telling stories. My mother was always telling stories. And so was I. So um, this is not the thing that started me on a storytelling path as a career. But <clears throat> many years after the fact, I reconnected with a cousin that I grew up with. And he says, oh, I could have told you you'd be doing this. Why? He said, because I remember you telling us stories. And we're very close in age, but, you know, I do recall sitting on their porch and they, they lived in Andes, which is in the Catskill region. And we went to visit. There's lots of mountains and hills nearby. Some people wouldn't call them mountains because if you live in the Rockies, they certainly were not the same. But uh, for me, there were mountains, you know, and right now I'm living in Buffalo, which is flat land, and I, I really miss the hills of home. Yeah. But sitting on the front porch, looking up at the hill, I remember one particular instance where I saw all the clouds, <clears throat> clouds up on top of the hill, and I thought, hmm, I can make up a story about that. 
And so suddenly they became signal fighters from an Indian village and, you know, I, but that's the stuff I told my cousins and I liked to scare them. So, <sighs> so how old were you nothing. when you were doing this? Oh, I was probably 10, 10, 11, 12, you know, much younger because, no, much younger than that now that I think of it. So eight or nine years old. Probably. Oh, wow. And I love scaring them, you know, so I never thought of that as anything except having fun with my cousins. You know. So many years later, it resurfaced as, hmm, I've been on this path, you know, before I even knew there was a path. And, you know, I think, I, I think Red Riding Hood would understand what I'm saying. Yes, and there you go. You don't know where you're going. But um, what started me on... Uh, path as storytelling for a career, I have an interest in history. And around around our home here, history is a major topic of conversation. Hmm. So um, my significant other is very, very in, you know, knowledgeable about dates and, and names, and that's not my forte. I'm more into the way people lived and why they did what they did. But um, it's a major topic, and so my interest in history, and especially medieval history, I, I joined a medieval society, the Society for Creative Anachronism, and that was in 1984, right around there, about the same time I became a storyteller. Right. I went to an event, and they had a feast. I had just, I'm an author, you know, so I have eight books published now, but um, I, at that time, was very frustrated because I was writing a lot of folk tales. Not that you can really write a folk tale or a fairy tale in, in its correct sense, but yeah. that ilk, that genre, mostly changing the names and faces to address problems that my friends were having. Oh, okay. And so I didn't know what I was doing, but it made sense at that time. I understand it completely now. And uh -huh. I had, had just gotten another rejection notice because I was sending them publishers. Nobody was interested in original fairy tales and folk tales. So I kept getting rejections and I had just gotten one that day and I went to this medieval feast sitting with a couple of people and one of them happened to be a writer and I was like complaining about oh I got rejected again and I can't get these stories published and it's so frustrating and most of those st stories by the way are still not published and probably never will be but they have entered my repertoire as told stories some of them oh okay and on on my reportings over the years so I was at this feast and I was complaining about this and he said a very simple phrase that changed my life cycle. Why don't you tell your stories? And I was like, what? What, is, what are you talking about? Tell my story. And he said, well, have you heard about storytelling? And I said, no. And he said, this was 1985. And he said, oh, well, for the people of the Middle Ages, the storytellers were very important. They had held a lot of power. They all were almost, yeah. they were freer than the peasants to travel from place to place. 
they could make or break a king by the words that they used. And I was like, what? Yeah. What? You know, and I was so thrilled by that. And um, that they were the, the people who brought the news, they were the teachers, they were the culture keepers, and they could get paid really well if they did a good job. And, and, and in fact, within that medieval society, I have quite a collection of jewelry that has been given to me by individuals and friends who collected uh, money from each other to buy me things and queens who have taken rings off their fingers and given them to me and so it's what? I, I actually hold the large the highest um, honor that you can get in that society for storytelling wow so, yeah so well, tell me about that story well, let me, let me just come back. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. And this friend also told me, <clears throat> do you know that there is a local guild where you live of storytellers? And I was like, no. So I joined the guild. I'm still in the guild. We don't have as many people in that guild, and that's the whole story unto itself. But, I'm, but all these years, and, and that changed my life. So wow. you, were ask, you were asking me to expound on, uh, I forgot already. <laughs> the ring, the, oh, or the, high, the highest honor that you were given. It looked like you were doing right, a ring so, thing on your so, finger there. So in the medieval society that I belong to, there are several awards for the arts. The first one might, well, there are awards for everything, but for just being good at what you do or known for what you do, you can become a lord or a lady. And that was the first thing that I got, I became lady. Okay. Uh, not Lorna, I, don't, I use uh, uh, Gabrielle, which is uh, part of my French persona in the society. And <clears throat> went up from there, I got all the different awards for the arts. Um, and then finally, I, I was awarded the laurel which is the highest society award you can get for the arts. Wow. Now, so I'm part of that. I have two apprentices. <clears throat> Doesn't mean anything in real life, no, but it's good to be recognized for what oh, you Oh, it do. is. Yeah. And, and you were recognized with an Oracle Award as well from the I National like Storytelling it. Network. Probably see it back on I can see it, but our, our listeners cannot. But there is yeah, there is an award yeah, right yeah. behind Lorna's head, sitting on a shelf that says NSN Oracle Award. <laughs> yes, and so and that that's was, that's for leadership and service, right? Yes, it is. And I couldn't be there the day they gave it. So oh no way! Um, oh, that's too I bad. I, and even in the medieval society, I wasn't there for most of the awards I was given. I had to be giving them given them after the fact, but. I was there Could, for my laurel. So. Oh, that's good. Yes, I would hope so. <laughs> Take and, a day and, off from the, the normal. My laureling ceremony was amazing. It was very unique. Um, the king and queen at the time, they're the mm -hmm. ones who did the award. And they held an event just for me. Wow. That's, that's, that's really cool. Here in a local armory that, had a, that has towers, it looks like a castle. And the room that they gave me for sitting my vigil was up in the tower. So you did a vigil, a vigil as oh, well. Yeah. yeah, it's like becoming a knight. Oh wow! Like, so knighting, knighting is for um, uh, fighting, and you know that yeah, yeah. 
the military, militia arts and whatever. <clears throat> but yes, so I sat vigil and everybody came and gave me gifts and advice. And um, I was up in this tower and then for my procession into the great hall to see the king and queen, we told the story. So we were, we were led by Celts holding spears and a Japanese procession. And I had children with fairy wings throwing trinkets to the crowd. And they were, they were preceded by a unicorn. It was, and I had, I had Middle Eastern dancers and everybody went up and presented gifts to the king and queen from me. So it was, it was a lot of fun and very exciting. That's so cool. So this is, just this like is my wedding, just like my wedding, I don't remember a lot from that day. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you had a good time though. <laughs> so this medieval society, um, when you got in, involved, how did you hear about that? Was it just something that you just saw somewhere and thought that would be interesting? My significant other had found out about it and had joined mm -hmm. and he had gone to a few events. And so he's the one who told me about it um, when we were still friends and then that blossomed, but. That's really cool. So, and so this is, this is kind of, it, it's like cosplay, but it's a lot more serious than cosplay by the sound of it. More, it, yes, it's, it's educational. Um, it's, they don't really call themselves reenactors, so to speak. Okay. Um, but it's, they call themselves an educational organization. And so every summer they hold a big war in Pennsylvania. Um, the winner gets, the loser gets Pittsburgh. And, uh, <laughs> yes, I know. I wasn't going to say anything. Well, well, that area is called the debatable lands. So it doesn't really have any affiliation with anyone except through winning the war. And, uh, I go every year. I, the first one I went to was number 17, year 17. And, uh, it is now, they canceled it last year because of the pandemic. And again, right. this this year would have been year 50. Wow. And I go and I sell spinning and weaving supplies from a tent. And so do you spin? I do. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's so cool. It's living a story. That's all. It gives me a yeah. That's so, that's so neat. So just for people that um, don't know where the Catskills are and where Rochester is, um, it's in New York State. So Buffalo is uh, pretty much Canada. They get a lot of snow. Well, we're, we're, <laughs> we're framed here by Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. And we are as far away in New York State as you can get from New York City. So right. A lot of people, when you say I'm from New York, they think New York City automatically. It's yeah. over 400 miles away from us. Which is a how long drive? 10 hour? At least. At least. Yeah. It, takes me, it takes me about six to eight hours of comfortable driving to get to Albany, which is the capital of New York. Right. That's, yeah. And beyond, yeah. And beyond that is New York, New York City. Which is further south. <laughs> For those that don't know the geography of the state. That, that's amazing. That's so cool that you've been doing that for that long. And that the organization, um, you know, trying to do quick math there, has been going on since the 70s. That medieval organization. Yeah. I, if you joined, 
in eighty four eighty five, and it was seventeen years before that, right? I mean, that's well, that was just that event. Okay. So, oh, know. so the organization might have been going on before that, then. Yeah. Before they. Started, oh wow. Started in Berkeley, California, at the college. Oh, okay. So, all oh, right. So it's affiliated with that. That's really cool. So you you mentioned that your your father and mother would read or tell you or tell you stories is what I think you said. Um, did they did they make up stories to tell you or were they reading stories to you? What kind of stories were well, they? Well, it's yeah. <laughs> um, so first of all, first of all, uh, I'm a major reader, and I'm probably it's funny because except for a few magazines, health books and maybe the newspaper there were very few books in my parents home but I'm an avid reader and they they basically subscribed me to all of the children's magazines and book collections you know Hardy Boys and all of that and I spent a lot of time reading as as a child and my mother read to me uh -huh. some of those books but uh, I grew up thinking that my mother uh, might have been Lucille Ball. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, she, she was just like amazing and imaginative, and uh, I get all that from my mom, you know. That's uh, really cool. So was she as nutty as Lucille Ball? Yeah, when we were growing up, she was, yeah. Yeah, that was <laughs> And then uh, my dad, my dad is, was quite the trickster. So most of the stories that he told us were in joke form, and a lot of them are not fit for uh, <laughs> for me to tell very many people. <laughs> okay, so I'm assuming that you heard those later on in life. <laughs> Just to give you an idea of the kinds of things my dad would do. This was, I remember some of these things. He used to, when he was a young man, carry a pocket full of nickels and he said he would go up to the girls and he would say, I'll bet, bet you a nickel I can kiss you without touching you. Oh, you can't do that, they would say. Go ahead and try, I'll take that, that. So then they, he would just kiss them and hand them a nickel. <laughs> <laughs> what a cheeky man. Yeah. <laughs> can't do that these days. No, no. No. Can't do that these days. That's that's interesting. So you you play the harp and you play it beautifully because I've heard you do that. Um, you were sitting. I think it, I think it was sharing the fire. I heard was it sharing the fire? It's hard to say. Yeah, it was either sharing the fire or one of the NSN conferences. But I think it was I think it was at sharing the fire, and you were just sitting there in the in the corridor playing the harp and it was absolutely gorgeous. And I just sat there and I think Bill Harley was just down the hall and chatting with someone else now all these people listening to what you were doing how how old were you when you started learning musical instruments and was that the first one or did well, you migrate from one instrument to another you're asking me so many fun questions <laughs> <laughs> so i was I, you know when i was growing up the music classes in school in, included flutophone have you ever heard of a flutophone is I, I think no. it's a lot. I think it's a lot like a recorder and what they call recorders today, but they were flutophones. Okay. I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. I couldn't play it to save my life. And 
I couldn't read music and I didn't understand music. And I was really terrible at math, which, you know, what I have been told since is that math and music go together. And yeah. so I just couldn't get it. And I used to love singing. Uh, my friends in the neighborhood would do these these uh, shows on, on each other's. Yeah, they're, oh, they still make food pros, my goodness. <laughs> I, ladies and gentlemen, I have found a flutophone. It does look remarkably like a uh, recorder, but it also looks kind of like a, a clarinet. So imagine a clarinet without all the fancy buttons and having holes in it made of plastic, and you've got a flutophone. <laughs> or, or something for charming snakes or something. Else. Yes, yes, that's, that's yes. A, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what it is. So I couldn't, I couldn't get it, but I used to sing into the end of a jump rope, that was our microphone when we were kids. Um, oh, fun. On my on, on my friend's front porch, we used to sing the Beatles and you know have a good time, do these little shows and make believe. But um, I I was actually forty years old before I got this. I, I first got a lap dancer, and this was uh, going back to the medieval society again. A friend yeah. of mine in the medieval society had gotten himself a dulcimer, a lap dulcimer. Mountain mm -hmm. and uh, he let me try it and I fell in love with it and oh so, so this is a an, what's also known as an Appalachian dulcimer yes okay so, so it's like a very skinny guitar with three strings is that right or four well, strings four. yeah three or four okay. all of them are played as drones and you play it by laying it flat on your lap although you know people have done all different ways of holding it mm -hmm. over the years and uh, I, he took me to help me buy my first instrument at a local string shop. Mm -hmm. and I, so the first thing I started playing was the lap dulcimer. And I used to sit in my living room for hours and hours and hours just strumming this thing and, and you know, having a great time. But I was 40 years old before I did that. So I didn't understand music or anything, but this dulcimer just spoke to me. I now have two of them and I have a third one that somebody gave me that I gave away um, so you get you get hooked on these things and then the next thing that that very same friend had gotten himself a harp and again he let me hold it and play with it and I loved it and then he took me to help me buy my first harp so I bought this little lap harp a little Celtic lap harp with 19 strings and that's what you've probably heard me playing yeah. I now have three harps <laughs> and, and a guitar and several drums and sitters and um, a piano and oh, wow. three or four fiddles. But the, the things that I play most often are the harp and the fiddle. Oh wow, that's so neat! So you 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 didn't become a, an official musician. We'll count the singing because you know that you should. One should, um, but you didn't become an, an official musician until you were forty. That's freaking awesome! Yeah. And now you and now you play a whole range of stuff. I do, and some I you know I can't say that I play for human consumption. <laughs> uh, the harp, the harp, I do. The harp, I do. Yeah. And I, I only play music that I've written on the harp. Okay. So oh. I, I took lessons for two years from a local woman who played for our Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra. Oh wow! Okay. And, uh, 
I got to the point, and when we were there, I was learning uh, to play from sheet music. I got to a point where I, I just felt I wasn't progressing. <clears throat> and I had started writing a lot of things with the harp. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I stopped taking the lessons and just went on to actually using it in some of my programs. I haven't written anything new for the harp in, in quite a while. But I remember saying to Beth, my teacher, you know, I feel a little bit, um, I, I don't know, I want to say uncomfortable, but um, like I'm not a real musician because I can't, I can't play from the music. And oh. she said, do you know how many people would kill to be able to write their own music? Yeah. You know? So yeah. you don't have to be able to do that and, you know now I, I just studied piano for a little while for a couple of years and I think I could go back to maybe doing some of that with the sheet music uh, oh wow that's so cool so so your so, your significant other he isn't he a musician as well no, no. oh okay so he, I, used I was, to, uh, he used to design toys for Fisher Price oh he did yeah, that's, I don't know. That, how, okay. So, are you familiar with some of the toys? I yes. Do you know the barn by any chance? I do. <laughs> you know how when you open the doors, it would go moo. Yes. He put the he, moo in the barn door. <laughs> you need a T-shirt with that. <laughs> yeah, my husband put the moo in the barn door. I like that. <laughs> I'll show you something else. I know your viewers, your your listeners can't see this, but up here on my shelf they can hear maybe yes they can i think i've seen one of those this is that's a tomato nope it's a happy apple oh that's a happy orange apple or it looks orange on the screen anyway well, that's why i went red. with it's very red it's, yeah okay all right so it's, there's a big red apple it's probably the size of a well it's it's big can and you it plays music time? yeah it's got a big smile on its face. That's my it husband's. That's my husband's invention. That is so neat. That what is that? I'm assuming that is that was that made by Fisher Price. Yes. I want to see if I can find one of those because that's awesome. That's so cool. Happy apple. Happy apple is what they were called. And he also, you know, the little dog they have that you you pull around. Um, they also had a little cow called Molly Moo Cow. Uh -huh. It had udders on it. He, did, he was on the design team that did that, too. Um, did he make that one moo? No. <laughs> that would have been good. It would have been good. <laughs> it waddles along and its udders swing and it moos. <laughs> yeah, so he used to work for Fisher Price, and he was still working for Fisher Price when I met him. So. It was part of a big layoff in the 80s, though. Yeah, the 80s wasn't... The 70s and 80s were a rough time. Back on to storytelling. Um, you know, you said that you it's mentioned... It's all storytelling. It's all yeah. you, you said that you were writing first, and you do have eight books published, but you're also featured in a couple of anthologies, at least two anthologies that I know of. Um, and three of the five, books... five anthologies altogether, I think. Okay, and so it's eight books that you've authored yourself, and then you've been in five anthologies, which is awesome. It's that's brilliant. And th uh, three of those books are a series of books that 
are targeted at people that work with at-risk children. Yes. And you and you do a lot of work with at-risk children. Yes. How did you how did you get into that? What drew you into that work? Just like everything else in my life, Simon, it was all by accident. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nothing nothing has ever been planned. I just tend to be a very open person and I I I say yes a lot to the things that the universe throws my way. It's, it's a good way to be. You say yes a few times and if it's successful then you're not so afraid to say yes again and again. And not everyone yeah. has panned out the way I would like it to, but I used to spend a lot of time regretting my past and now I look and say it's all been part of the journey that led me to where I am right now. And I'm very happy to say I'm happy with who I am and who I've become. So my sadly it was a sad situation that led to my work with at-risk youth but um, again it's it's a blessing in disguise because it did put me on that that journey um, my niece and I don't think she would mind me saying this um, I won't say her name or anything like that but okay. uh, I have told many people the story, and it's in the books anyway, but um, in 1995, she became a runaway. She ran away from home, um, you know, and there's a lot of kids who do that. I did it. <laughs> I still, in fact, uh, my parents had a flood in their, their home, and I was staying in their home when I was working in the area where they lived, and they were snowboarding to Florida. And I had to clean out a filing cabinet full of wet files, and I found one with my name on it, which my dad eventually gave me uh, to keep. But in that folder, there was my uh, uh, report card from grade school. And you want to talk about uh, stories that, you know, I'm going all over the place, but I'll get back to your question. <laughs> So, uh, in there was a report card. My interest in the Middle Ages started in grade school with a teacher who did the kind of program that I do in schools for children. And um, she had signed the report card to the best peasant in the kingdom, signed Lady Elizabeth. And that, that, that report card was in that folder. The other thing that was, was in that folder um, was, I forgot where I was going with this, Simon, what was your question? Oh, about at-risk youth, and I told you, oh, yeah. the only thing in that folder was the letter that I wrote to my parents, I'm running away from home and I'm never coming back. <laughs> yeah. um, I, do know, I do know that I called my parents uh, an hour later and they came and got me. I, it's, <laughs> I did a similar thing. I did a similar thing. I had an evil stepfather and I'd had enough and I planned it and I had my bicycle set and at midnight I took off on my bicycle and I was heading to my dad's house in Wales and I cycled from midnight until three o'clock in the morning and was so exhausted I needed to sleep but I couldn't find anywhere that I felt safe to sleep where I was and so I phoned my parents up from a phone <laughs> from a phone box and my stepfather my evil stepfather came to pick me up because my mother couldn't drive at that time and uh she didn't learn to drive until she was about 40 something maybe 50 
Um, so she was a late, <laughs> she was, you know, you talk about you going into music. My mom didn't get into driving. She still doesn't really like it that much until she was much older. But anyway, he came and picked me up and um, it was a very silent drive back home. A little oh. bit of humility. <laughs> yeah. Well, my new But we made our statements, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and our parents learned a little bit more about parenting, too. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe yours did. My stepdad didn't. He was a, he was a ding-dong. But anyway, yeah, it took my dad a while. In fact, years later, he actually confessed to me. He said, "You know, I want to apologize because he and I were were fire and water when I was a teenager." And um, he said, "I want to apologize." He said, "I just didn't know how to be a parent." I said, "That's okay, Dad. You know, it, it's a learning experience. Nobody, there's no, you're not yeah. given a meal when your kids are born. You know." I know. You get the placenta, but nothing else. <laughs> But um, anyway, my niece ran away from home, but her situation was real. Right. Uh, she was gone three weeks before anybody even told me about it, and I only found out about mm. it. I called and asked to talk to her, and her mother said, she's not here. Um, wow. She, for quite a few years leading up to that point, um, had wanted to leave, and I would call me. We were very connected. And she would call me, and I would rush down there and take her off somewhere where we could be alone, and we would talk about it um, and how it wasn't a good idea and how it was a bad, bad idea. And then she got more and more serious, and we sat down and we looked at a budget of what she would need to live comfortably and, and safely. And I, it, it was going well until that moment when... She just she was co-facilitated by a slightly older boy who also wanted to leave them, and they did. Um, think about all of the statistics of things that you hear that can happen to young ladies on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she was a high school dropout, uh, abused, and it goes oh, on. Jeez, yeah. The good news is, the good news is that she survived. She survived largely because I think, and this I'm going to put this on myself and give myself the credit for this, but because I I worked really hard to keep her in the family fold, and so she maintained the connection with me, with her grandparents, who eventually took her in and helped her finish her high school education. Right now, she's married, has her own home for the first time, and four beautiful children. The second one just graduated from high school, and he graduated with the on the National Honor Society. Oh, that's brilliant! That's such a good story. It is. Um, it's a happy ending, but not all yeah. kids' stories are that happy, you know. No. So I, I couldn't do anything to help her. There's 150 miles between me and my main family so i i live how i got in buffalo is a whole other story but <laughs> my family was here and they went back and i stayed here <clears throat> so there's that distance between us and she was on her own with this boy and i couldn't reach her there was no way to reach her there's nothing i could do and she was like the daughter i never had and it was horrible simon it was it was it. I was anxious all the time. I didn't. Every terrible thing that could happen to a to a kid who wasn't streetwise and 
I mean, it all went through my head and I reached out and finally, and I don't remember how I found them, honestly, but I found mm -hmm. a local runaway shelter and resource center here in Buffalo. Compass House is what they were, is the new organization. And I have ever since 1995, when my niece ran away and I reached out to this organization, uh, it became it became my soul's work, work, not just my life's work, but my soul's work. I have been the resident storyteller with that runaway shelter ever since. I go twice a month and work with the kids there. Wow. Uh, I, I worked for a while, for nine years, as a matter of fact, I was the resident storyteller in a trauma treatment facility where the children lived and went to school and got their treatment. Um, and since then, I have been doing that work. Since then, I have realized that we do more than just tell stories. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's there is a connection that we make in everyday life that I think I would not have done without storytelling. You know, talking to people sitting in the waiting room or on the elevator and telling them my story, hearing their stories. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I would have done that. I don't think I would have done that. And, and I owe Without the storytelling. So you, you tell you tell all sorts of different kinds of stories. So you do folk and fairy tales. You also do your original stories, which you mentioned already those so, so are those kind of like hans christian anderson type of things where they're, they're literary fairy tales as you you might call them yeah i would say pretty much pretty much okay. and there are some fit folkish more folkish type stories as okay well. so i have a, like a poor tale you know poor being the why and how stories uh, right. the, night, the night wolf ate the moon nice you know, I think is that is that on your CD? It's on one of my recordings. I don't remember which one. Yeah, I think it is because I I, I I know that story and I know that I haven't heard you tell it live. So, and so you so you do also do historical stories and personal storytelling. So you yes. you do the full gamut, which is really and you when you do the historical story storytelling, you you do that in costume. Costume usually in persona. Right. So I'm in. I'm in character. Um, I do a, a story on uh, the Dust Bowl, the American Dust Bowl. And that's called Moving Dress, right? The, the Moving Dress. The Moving Dress. Yeah. Right. So tell tell me about that because that kind of it's set in the Depression, right? It's set in the Depression, which is when the Dust Bowl happened, and the two events mm -hmm. were not really the same, but they coincided with each other. So. For the people in the heartlands, the Midwest, and places, the breadbasket of America, uh, they they were not only going through the Great Depression, but they were having their crops and their homes and their lives destroyed by these walls of dust that would blow across the plains. And part of that was due to poor conservation of the soil. They didn't, you know, they didn't. They plowed up the fields to plant more crops because they need, they needed the money, and uh, so it all came together in what we would call a perfect storm. No pun intended. Yeah. So 
back, I don't remember how many years ago, I've lost track of time. Sometimes I have to think uh, in terms of how old was I or, you know, my, my parents passed away in, in uh, 2009 and 2010, so it was probably at least 10 years before that. That's the way I calculate time. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a long time ago, and uh, it, it must have been a... Uh, an anniversary year, either of the Dust Bowl or maybe the Grapes of Wrath movie. I'm not sure which, but uh, which is based, which is about the Dust Bowl. Right. And um, it was some anniversary year in a very small town called Holly, New York, and, and it is a very small place. Their library somehow or another got a hold of me, and they said we would like you to write a story or to come and tell a story about the Dust Bowl. And I said, well, I'm going to write a story about the Dust Bowl. So it's inspired by the Grapes of Wrath. Um, it's about a woman and her family in Oklahoma, uh, farmers who were very prosperous until uh, the Dust Bowl took everything they had. And they had to pack up and move to California like so many people. 25% of the American population was was uh, unemployed. Um, I think it was something like, oh, I don't it was thousands, maybe 25,000, uh, 250,000 or 400,000, I forget, people who were on the road looking for work. Right. It was, it was incredible. And, and so, um, a lot of people migrated to California where uh, they were hiring migrant workers for pennies a day. Uh, and so that whole story is the moving dress is based on that. And it's titled the moving dress because of, of my mother in a way. My, my mother and father did not have a lot of money when we were growing up. And uh, my father was my adoptive my adoptive father. I wanted okay. my my mother got divorced. I was born in Texas. I'm oh, okay. All, all Texan, and I was born in Texas. <laughs> but I came came to New York State when I was just a babe in arms. So Texas is just a memory and something I'm just proud of. But um, uh, she met a man. My dad. My uh -huh. dad. She met him at the Oneana Hotel in Oneana, New York, which is in the Catskill region, around Cooperstown and that that area. Uh, the story is that my mom uh, had gone out with a girlfriend that night, and uh, she was selling kisses for a dollar. My dad bought one. Your dad likes his kisses, doesn't he? <laughs> and he, I don't think he even gave her a nickel, but you never know. <laughs> I think it was $8, so that was the most expensive kiss we ever got. But uh, I wanted a new dad when I turned five for my birthday, and so they got married on my birthday. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah so what were, what were we talking about, Simon? <laughs> I, I'm not sure anymore. We, the moving dress is what we were talking oh, about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said my, it was because of my mother, because they didn't have a lot of mother, a lot of uh -huh. money. Uh, my mom, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, but when uh, when we were little, we had her, her mother, my grandmother, moved in with us to take care of us while my mother worked. And then after she got married, 
my grandmother continued to live with us for a while. My dad went to college and my mother worked. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, but she said, you know, she said, we don't have a lot of money. This is what she told me. But there's never an excuse to be dirty because soap is cheap. Right. Yeah. I, yes. That's a really cool line. That's... There's a line in the move-in dress where they, they've lost everything. They've lost this prosperous farm that, that the, my main character, who doesn't have a name, but the main character's husband's family built this farm. They settled it during the Oklahoma land rush. Mm-hmm. And they built it up and it was very prosperous. Prosperous. Uh, her husband had worked the farm since he was a little boy. He managed to pay off the mortgage, although they had to re-mortgage it many times. You know, they took out loan after loan after loan just to get by, but they always paid it off. And then finally there came a day when they couldn't. Everything snowballed. The dust came, it destroyed the crops. They needed money for seed to plant more crops. The tractor engine got clogged with dust. They needed to repair the tractor engine. Her youngest son died of dust pneumonia, and so she wanted a proper burial for him. And it just, they couldn't pay off the loan, and one day the bank came and they said, pay your loan or lose the farm. And uh, while they begged and pleaded for another week, they weren't given that other week. And they packed packed what they could, they sold what they could, they gave away what they, they couldn't. And they, they had to leave all of this behind and take their family of six children out to California, where they started to work there for other people for, you know, a, not even enough money to feed the family for a single day. So they went from all of that to nothing. And then back to having something again. But there's one line as they're packing up the day they have to leave their home their farm. She says, I put on my moving dress. I smoothed the wrinkles out and I looked in the mirror that still hung on the wall and tucked my hair in place. We might be poor, but there's no need to look shabby. Yeah, and, and you we can with the children and we headed to California. Wow. And you can hear that line on, on Lorna's website because there's a little trailer for that. So, yeah. And you're all in costume there and it's shot in black and white, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> so it, the moving dress is the moving dress. It's the dress she put on the day she had to move. And she kept wow. it. She kept it with all the memories. Right, because she, sm- she puts it up to her face later on and smells it, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that comes from uh, being a healing storyteller and one day watching uh, after some disaster earthquake or, mm-hmm. or hurricane or something, watching people going through piles of rubble and picking up broken teacups and broken picture frames and you're like, why? Why are right. why are you doing that? And then, as a storyteller, you say, because each one of those things holds a story. 
Right. Those connect us with who we are. Yeah. And, you know, so the moving dress is very important. It's an artifact. It's an artifact of her life. Yeah, and that, that 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 story, even though you like made that up, that's that story is a true story of someone, right? Yes, I mean it's it's not a true story. It's not based on any one particular person, but right, it's inspired by the grapes of wrath, as I said, um, and uh, the history, and you know, doing your research and learning about the way people lived and the things that they went through. Uh, I sang for a little while. Um, with the Blue Eagle String Band, but this was after the um, after I wrote that story, mm-hmm. and we did songs from the Great Depression. Um, and right now, uh, if you saw that uh, that clip, did I have did I have the musician in the beginning of that? There's there is yeah there is music. There's guitar playing or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so, um, Beautiful guitar playing, actually. I did the I did this as a performance online during the pan- pandemic, and mm-hmm. invited this uh, uh, the lead musician from the Blue Eagle String Band, and he did that. You know, he he was the music in that program. Uh, he came and he did some live music up front. Well, right now I am negotiating with him and another musician. Uh, we're going to turn the music, the moving dress, into a musical. Oh wow! So we're we're currently working, excuse me, currently working on that plan and hoping to actually do a performances in the fall. Are you also going to do that online? I think so. I think so. I don't know what they, you know, a lot of it's going to depend, I guess, on venue. So, because you do you do folk and fairy tales and you do your original stories and your history and personal stories. What do you what do you find the most rewarding for you? What speaks to you most? Uh, the historical stories. Um, you know, I do another one about Joan of Arc, for instance. Oh. But not as Joan, because so many people have done Joan, and because Joan did not keep a journal, and because we don't really know what Joan was thinking. Right. I decided to tell it uh, from the perspective of a woman whose husband served in her army. Again, oh. a fictitious person. Yeah, yeah. But um, that way, I can I can see it through the lens of an observer. Uh, but I I love doing that because I love doing the research and crafting the stories around it. Um, but I I would say most of what I do with my, my teens and my at-risk programs are folk and fairy tales because of the very uh, rich and meaningful metaphors for life that are in those and, and how it allows us to step back and, and see life at a safe distance as it's played out by the characters. Yeah, so could you, could you go a little bit deeper into that? Um, I can try. So well, again, I'll share a story. So, um, a, an actual what something that happened to me. So, years ago, everything is years ago, far, far ago, far, far away. Um, early in my storytelling career, I was hired by the Backyard Circus. So, the Backyard Circus is uh, created by a gentleman who is now retired. And it was 
to spur children's imaginations. So the children became the performers in this little circus and they made believe that they were walking tightropes and they made believe that they were the lions and had all these costumes. Um, and I was hired for their uh, teddy bear wagon. They had a, a, this was for the CNE, which is the Canadian National Exhibition, 10 day event. Wow. And, uh, they had three wagons. I, I forget what the third wagon was, but one of them was the circus where they would do regular shows and the children would, and families would come and they would go through the circus and I had a break then. Then they had the teddy bear wagon, which was filled with all kinds of teddy bears. It was just a facade wagon, you know. There was it was not a real wagon; it was a facade. Okay. And all these, all of these teddy bears, and a big cauldron for making teddy bear stew, make believe teddy bear stew. And I would always joke and say, "No, we don't throw the bears in the stew." And I was a teddy bear lady, but I didn't dress as a bear. But I was a storyteller, so I was supposed to engage the children and make-believe and making the stew and what they would put in it and tell stories about bears and at that time I think I knew two stories about bears. I knew Goldilocks and the Three Bears and the song The Bear Went Over the Mountain and my schedule was the fair, I'm, I'm guessing at the time, so the fair would open at something like nine in the morning or ten in the morning and then the, the section where we were would close around five, six o'clock. Of course, the carnival itself would still be going on. And that was my schedule, you know, get there in the morning. And when they weren't holding the circus, whenever a group of children or a child or a family would come by, I would engage them. So you can imagine no set schedule doing this. You could be doing it for 20 minutes. You could be doing it for an hour. You could be doing, you know, just yeah. people coming and going. 10 days. That's a lot. Days. That's a, that's a run. Two, I need two bear stories, right? <laughs> so after three days, after three days, I said, I'm not going to make it. I don't figure out what Goldilocks really means because I'm so tired of telling that story. And every time I would tell the story, I would say to the children, what does that mean to you? And they would say, um, don't go into someone's house when they're not home. And for a little child, that's a very, very, very good thing to remember. Right. Don't go into somebody's house when they're not home. And you don't take their things without asking. There's so many good lessons in that story for young children but I'm the storyteller and I had to make it meaningful. So, you know, this this was a discovery moment, Simon, just one of those many, many discovery moments that changed my life. When I realized that if the story, if I can't find meaning in the story for me as the teller, right. then I don't feel I'm doing a good job telling the story. It doesn't mean that you have to have the same meaning but it has to be meaningful to me. Otherwise, I'm just on automatic. So, um, and I had to do this for 10 days, so that after that third day, I took Goldie back to my motel. <laughs> and I psychoanalyzed the poor girl. I said, you lie right over there on the couch, Goldie, and 
we're going to have a conversation. <laughs> and we did. Now, I have I have a shelf over here. It's my resource book shelf. And um, it's full of, you know, dictionaries and, and that kind of thing. Synonyms and antonyms and homonyms. And it also has a lot of books on symbolism and... Um, and some books on magic and that kind of thing. And so I had done a lot of reading, um, Joseph Campbell, for instance, and a lot of reading from those books and studying. Uh, and so metaphor has always interested me. And I said, Goldie, we got to figure out what you mean. And so I took that story and I pulled it apart. I, I made a list of every number, every color, every character, every setting, every object, and I assigned meaning to it based on what I knew about symbolism and metaphor. You know, the house being security, uh, and so on and so on and so on. And then I w it was like, I finally understood something about that story. And I said, you know, I'm going to try telling that story different tomorrow for the children. I'm going to tell it in first person as Goldilocks. So the next day I told the story when the children came, the first group of children came, I said, let me tell you a story about something that happened to me when I was a child. I went walking in the woods one day and I told the whole story that way. And as I was doing that, things were happening to me personally. Oh. I'll come back to that in a moment. Because when I finished the whole story, the little girl sitting in front had these big, beautiful curls like Goldilocks. She looked up at me and she said, ah, You're, you're Goldilocks. So I never said my name. I just told the story. Goldilocks, and it was like, like somebody set off an atom bomb, and everything went whoosh right over me, and I was flooded with, oh my God, I am Goldilocks. And here's the thing, Simon. I had been an interior designer for 15 years. That's what I went to college for. But I had gotten divorced, and I felt like I needed security. So I decided to become a teacher. I looked at what do I want to do that I think I'd be really good at doing that would be meaningful in life. And I became a teacher. So I was 40 years old, about the same time I became a storyteller, about the same time I learned music. Right. Um, and I went back to school to be a teacher. You I, got your BA. I got my BA um, through Empire State College, which is a non-traditional college but it's connected with the university and they give you life credits so I got credits for all of my life um, that helped me to get that bachelor's degree that's and excellent I went, on, I went on and I I got my master's in education and special education with an award by the way for <laughs> in, in special education and um and I asked my dad for a loan because I didn't want to take a loan out of the bank. I said, Dad, you know, um, I had gotten a lot of scholarships, but I still had money to pay back college. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time. Uh, you know, I was 40 years old, but my dad and, and how 
uh, and his advice and how he he thought of me was very important to me. And I said, you know, Dad, I you know I, I know I've I've worked really hard to be an interior designer, and and I stayed in Buffalo to go to college for that after my family left. Um, and I worked really hard, and I and I've I've sacrificed, and I I've created. Um, a name for myself in the local uh, design. I even taught design at the same college next to my professor um, and, and all of that. And I said, now, Dad, I want to be a teacher. And so it took me a long time to convince him that this was a good change for me in my life. It, it, did it matter? No, you know, but, but it mattered yeah. to me. And so he, you know, he really agreed with this. And I went to him and I asked him for a loan to pay off my student loan. Instead of giving the interest to the bank, Dad, I'd rather give the interest to you. And my dad said, it was like $9,000, which was a minute amount to pay off the loans, you know. But it, that's all I had left. And, and he said, I don't, I'm not going to, to loan you the money. It's part of your inheritance and I'd like to give it to you now while I'm still alive because you could lose it. So my dad handed me $9,000. Wow. And someplace in between the end of being an interior designer and the beginning of becoming a teacher, storytelling found me back in the medieval group, right going back to our yeah. story. And I was getting calls, more and more calls for storytelling. At the same time, I was getting calls for substitute teaching and going on interviews for teaching. And I said, something's got to give because both of these things are pulling at me. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a storyteller. Um, if somebody calls me to tell stories somewhere, no, I can't tell stories I'm teaching today. Somebody calls me to teach, no, I can't teach. I'm telling stories today. And I had to give myself 100% to something. Yeah, I get that. And storytelling was it. It had such a pull for me. Yeah. My whole life, I told you, going back to everything that happened to me in my life, my whole life was, was bringing me to that moment. And I had to now go to my dad and say, Dad, you just gave me $9,000. <laughs> I want to be a storyteller. Oh, storyteller, what's that? You know. Can I have another nine grand? <laughs> so I was trying. To, I was trying to figure out how to do that on that day that I was Goldilocks, and that and that whole thing rushed over me, and I said, "I am Goldilocks. I am that little girl, all grown up, looking for what's just." right for me looking for the chair that I can sit in yeah looking for the porridge the food the nourishment that I can eat looking for the bed where I can fall asleep and thank goodness the bears came home because they woke me up if they hadn't woke me up if I hadn't continued my journey, I'd still be asleep. And that was the moment I knew how to tell my dad. 
And that was the moment I became a true storyteller. Wow. That's an amazing story. And that That's... was the moment I realized the power of metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, metaphors. Yeah, and symbolism. It's it's amazing stuff. There's magic in that. There's there's power in that. So so Lorna, there's there's one thing that I read on your website. Um, you say that you, you do a lot of humanitarian work. Could you describe that a little bit? Well, <clears throat> my visits. Well, I guess you could say that my work is humanitarian. Um, yeah. my, my visits to the runaway shelter. You know, in the beginning. I used mm -hmm. to have a symbiotic relationship with them. They would say, well, we want to pay you. And I would say, but I don't want to be paid. But here's what we'll do. You don't have a lot of money. I don't need a lot of money at that time. You pay me when I need it. I'll ask you. Oh, and that's nice. So I would, you know, they were giving me maybe a $1,000 a year, which isn't a lot if you're going twice a month. But that's all they had. And then eventually that dried up. And they couldn't pay me anything. But the work was too important to not do it. So my work with the teens at the runaway shelter mm -hmm. is gratis. I don't get paid for that. But if they had the money, I would gladly take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all, I, think, I think every single one of us has um, something that we, we do for nothing. We do it for love is what we right. do it for. We do it for it our souls. Feeds, feeds my soul, yes. It does. You mentioned before we got onto the call that you you gave a CD away to some some guy. Yeah. So let what me was... let me connect let me connect this with your with your question about humanitarian work. Yeah. So I have a five hundred one c three story crossroads story center. Again, it was one of those weird things. I was doing a presentation at a conf storytelling conference on the work I do with teens. And mm -hmm. a woman came up and said, I have a foundation, I want to give you money to, to become a 501c3. Oh, wow. But I hate re writing grants, and I don't do a very good job of it, and yes, I have to, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I, yeah. I, can, I can take myself in a closet and admonish myself constantly. Um, but, uh, so I could be getting paid something for the work that I do, but right, that's a whole other story. This is. I'm going to come back to your question. I promise about the young man. Okay. But first, story sit in. So, I go to a church up the road and around the corner, about 15 minutes from where I live. That again was one of those weird things. I was there with my fiddle group, fiddling in the church for their for their Sunday service, and I ended up staying as part of the congregation. <laughs> um, but there's a neighborhood nearby that is largely low-income immigrant. There's a lot of immigrants in that neighborhood from uh, the Middle East, from Africa. And one day, as I was trying to connect with the people in that neighborhood, and I saw some boys playing outside of our church. They were playing with a ball. And I just went outside and I said, would you like to hear a story? And they sat down and they heard a story and they lived across the street from the church, but they never came to the church. And so I just told them stories when I saw them out and about. And then one day I was driving my van past this neighborhood 
and you know, I'm a very spiritual person. I am Christian, but I've dabbled in lots of other things. <laughs> I've come back to my roots, which was Christian. And you know that song, Jesus Take the Wheel? Forget her name, but I'm driving along and then all of a sudden, I said, I've got to go down this street. I don't know why <laughs> I got to go down this street. So I turned down the street and there were a group of children playing in the yard. Uh, the apartments uh, take up two city blocks on both sides of the block. And they had like a little group of maybe three buildings with a grassy courtyard in between. And then they'll have another three buildings with another grassy courtyard and so on and so on. And mm -hmm. most of the times the people within those apartments, that's their courtyard and they don't cross the line very much as some of the children do. I saw a group of children playing and I pulled over my van and I got out and I went over and I made sure I, I had contact, visible contact with adults. So they yeah. knew on the up and up and I said, which my fear is through. And I sat down and I told them stories. It's now six years that I've been doing that. Wow. Every summer. Um, and I, I set a day and a time. I take, now I'm at the point where I take a wagon, people give me books. I walk up and down that two blocks. I find groups of children and families and even adults and tell them stories and interact and talk to them. Um, sometimes I take my puppet. Sometimes I give them, most often I give them a free book from my story uh -huh. wagon. I have a blanket, they spread it on the ground, the children sit, I sit on a stool. So that story sitting. Again, I don't get paid. I want to get a sponsor or a grant to, to expand that work, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then um, last year, right before everything shut down uh, during the pandemic, um, I had this idea, really, that story sit-in is part of a, a bigger, a bigger plan, and so is yard tales. Yard tales. Saturday afternoon in my front yard. How big is your front yard? Um, not huge. It's maybe ten by ten. It's not huge. Okay. Right. I have I have some chairs that a friend gave me. I set up a little circle of chairs. I put out a sign, come hear a story. I have my wagon with my books there for the children. Um, I try to do things that will get attention from people passing by. So I've had my harp out there. This goes back to the harp. Um, huh. I've had harp out there. I've had my spinning wheel out there. One Saturday, I invited a woman with a cello and she and I are working out a collaboration of storytelling and cello music. And so uh -huh. we worked out there for a little while. And um, I've had all kinds of really neat little experiences. I'm gonna come back to it because that's the young man with the CD. Uh -huh. um, but this whole thing with stories sit in and yard tales is part of a bigger plan that I have. Um, do you remember the happenings of the 1970s? A happening was where an artist would create an art piece and it would be destroyed at the same time. So it might involve... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there were lots of these little things like street performers. And my, my bigger plan is that eventually a circle of chairs will just appear somewhere in the city. 
with a sign that says, come hear a story, share a story. Um, and I'm getting closer to making that a reality. That's neat. I like the idea. So one day, I was sitting in yard tails, and uh, my next door neighbors came over and I, I shared stories with them. And then this, I was just packing up, just packing up my things. And I had written in the chalk on the sidewalk, yard tails with an arrow pointing to my yard. This young man, I would say he's in his twenties, but I'm terrible against age. Everybody looks young to me anyway. I know, like you reach a certain age and you have no idea. So, so they could be 20, they could be 16. I know, totally, I'm totally with you. So I'm in a commercial neighborhood. So my street is commercial. In fact, my property is zoned commercial and we get all kinds of people just driving down the street to shop at the stores on their way here and there. Not necessarily neighbors or people we know, a lot of strangers. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of caution that goes with that. Mm -hmm. um, but Yard Tales is supposed to be twofold. Making me visible as the storyteller in my own neighborhood. I want people to drive by and say, the storyteller lives there. 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now, I want people to go by and say, there used to be a storyteller living there. Um, because there was, once upon a time when we first moved in, a little house that looks like a cottage in the neighborhood. And there was a man who played Santa Claus. And every Christmas, he would go out and sit in his driveway. Oh, nice. And cars would line up. People would, I mean, you couldn't find a place to park. And then the kids and the families would come and line up in front of Santa. And I did it a time or two just to as an adult go up and say I mean he was Santa he is no longer with us and that no longer happens but I want my house to be like that Yeah. I want this to be the storyteller's house <clears throat> so I was sitting there this young man not even from my neighborhood as it turns out lives over near the college somewhere mm -hmm. he's just walking by and he's reading the chalk on the sidewalk as I'm packing up and he stops and he looks at me and says, what is this? I said, I'm here telling stories. I'm just packing up, but okay, well, I'll come back. No, no, no. I can spend a couple more minutes if you want to hear a story. Would you like to hear a story? And he looked at me. I mean, he has this, this childlike enthusiasm in his face and his smile. And, and he looked at me and he said, can you tell me a love story? Oh, and wow. I said, I said, yes, I can. Let's sit down. And so he sat in my chair and I thought for a minute about what to tell him. And I ended up telling him um, a sulky story. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking the woman of the sea. <laughs> so I ended up telling him a sulky story. And um, I, I had my harp out that day. And I had been, and I said, would you like to hear the harp? Yes, yes, yes. So I played the harp for him. And he just sat there with this little boy face and this adult, you know, and was just so happy and and I have this particular harp and I always let people hold it and try it if they want and so I said would you like to try it I can't do that please you want it oh yes I want to you know so the harp and he just sat there I mean he just sat there with his harp running his fingers over the strings he couldn't play but he was 
listening to the sound and unless it's out of tune you really can't make a harp sound bad and he was just he said he looked up at me and he said if i come back would you teach me how to play and he said i'll pay you but you know and i said i would be happy to teach you so earlier this week i'm sitting at my computer doing some work in my office on the doorbell rang and I thought it was a delivery from, you know, UPS delivery from something that I had ordered. So I go down to the door and I open it and there's this young man. He was going wherever he goes and he has his bike, he's on his bicycle. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, do you have some time? And I said, well, I'm in the middle of something, but I can give you some time. Do you come out? and play for me, play the harp. I, I've, I'm going through a really bad day and I need to play harp. And, you know, my first thing I heard was a little child, and even myself when I was a kid, stopping at a friend's house and saying, can you come out to play? Yeah. And I said, yes, I can do that. So uh, first I gave him a t- tour of the way back, my yard, which mm-hmm. is narrow and deep. And here in the city, you wouldn't know it, but we have this park-like yard. It's amazing with a fish pond, and I have herbs. And I took them back, and I showed them everything. And you know, I, I broke off pieces of the various herbs and mints. And you know, he put his nose out for me to hold it up to his nose, and then <laughs> I put it up to his nose. I gave him a daisy, and I gave him some lavender. And I said, can I keep these? And I said, yes, you can keep those. And we went and we sat in my little Starlight Cafe, which uh, is Starlight because one day, my one night, my husband told me, come outside with my eyes closed, and he took me out and he had put Christmas lights in the tree. Um, and it's a lilac tree, and we have a little table and chairs there. And so you'll hear me talk about the Starlight Cafe a lot. Um, and so we, we sat there, and I showed this young man. I played for him a little bit. And I let him take the harp and he played it a little bit. I showed him how to, you know, what the notes were and, and, and he started singing softly to himself. Wow. I was in love with the girl and, uh, and then he looked at me and smiled and he said, I just wrote a song. <laughs> That's brilliant. He's a poet apparently, he's written poetry. And so we did that for a little while, and then I told him, I do have to get back to work now. And, you know, I, I, I'm i being cautious because I don't know him yet, you know. Right, but right, right, yeah. I don't want to say no because he obviously needs to be there, you know. And he's, he's just so cute and sweet. And um, so we went out to his bicycle, and when we were out there, I said, he said, do you have a business card? And I said, yes, I'll get it for you. And as I was getting the card, I said, I also have a CD. And so I gave him a CD, one of my CDs, and he looked at it. It's one that I drew the picture of on the front. I did the artwork. And he said, did you do this? And I said, yes. And he turned it over, and he saw how professional it looked. And he said, is this really yours? And I said, yes, it's really <laughs> And I said, you can have it. You can have it. He does not have a CD player. I said, oh, yes, of course not. He said, not yet, but I'm going to get one, and I'm thinking, please, you know, get it legally. <laughs> um, but, yes. Um, <laughs> well, there's all these, like, charity shops, so you can pick them up for a song now. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
so so um yeah i mean i don't know what the situation is i, I don't know him i don't know the situation but um if that's where god wants me to be that's where i'm gonna be that's freaking awesome that's such a great story all right Two, two, two more things. One is like you're into steampunk, it turns out, because you've written a steampunk story and it's in an anthology, at least one. Well, I, or is, I think... Or not I really. Think, <laughs> I think steampunk is fascinating. Um, I'm not a reenactor. I do know some people who are, and mm -hmm. I didn't really know that much about it. <laughs> but just like everything else in my life, somebody came along and said, I know you're an author. Do you have any steampunk stories for my anthology? And I said, <sighs> no, but I'll write one. <laughs> That's going back so, to that yes thing again, right? Yes, yes, yes. So I have stories actually in three steampunk books by this young woman for anthologies. And the one, um, after I wrote it, I realized it was a bigger story, so I've been writing the novel. Oh, wow, quite okay. A, quite a few years, Zeus is Fire. Um, and it's a, it is a novel from that short story that went in for anthology. And I am still getting my rejection notices. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to self-publish and just do it that way. Well, and I'm also writing, I'm also writing a, a, a collective novel of short stories about a girl living on the Erie Canal. So Oh, fun. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where my focus is going to be, so I might work for several months on one and then change to the other. Uh, the, the, the steampunk uh, story, though, has become three books. It's a trilogy. Wow. I'm, half, I'm, I'm halfway through. I'm almost finished with the second novel and um, just about ready to begin the third one, but I went back to trying to get the first one published. So... That's cool. That's so neat. All right, one more one more question, which is kind of a three-parter. And those people that listen to the show will probably guess what this question is. What is your favorite breakfast? Where would your favorite place to eat that breakfast be? And who would you have it with? <laughs> Ooh, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> well, right now I'm on the IF diet, intermittent fasting, so I trying to skip breakfast, but I... Kind of, or you did? <laughs> I, I do, I do. Okay, all right, okay. I, I, yeah, I have my window that I eat in, and then I can pig out in that window. Um, but, <laughs> Doesn't that defeat the whole idea? <laughs> it is, great, and I lost, I lost almost 20 pounds that way, so... Um, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so um, my favorite breakfast, I would say I like the full country breakfast which is not the same thing as, it, it depends on what country you're in. Right, right. So I'm going with American. Okay. Bacon, eggs, pancakes, hash fries, the whole Sausages, thing. yes. Yeah. My favorite place to eat it, hmm, at, you know, that could change almost any time, right? But right now it would be in the Starlight Cafe. Nice, I like that. In my yard, I like to go out with my breakfast, my coffee, whatever, just sit there, listen to the birds. Um, nice. And who would I like to have it with? Oh, there's so many choices there. But the one person, famous person, 
Okay, so okay. I, I can name a lot of people who are not famous that I would like to have breakfast with, but there is a famous person that I have a burning desire to meet. I'm, I'm not one of those stalking fans. <laughs> but this one person I have a burning desire to meet, and I have for a long time, and it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger every year. The more he produces his work, the more I want to meet him. I want to spend a whole day as a shadow with this man, Willie Nelson. Really? Willie Nelson. I was not expecting that. That's really cool. Why Willie yeah. Nelson? What? There is, what's, there is, what's he? What does he do? Or what has he done that? Well, that, you that know, has... you know, he's a musician and a singer-songwriter. Yep. Singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. He's written for a lot of people over the years. And he sings his soul, and he sings like his soul. And, you know, he's rough, he's tough. I'm sure he was a druggie and everything else at one point, but he sings his soul. And when he sings, it's like I get goosebumps and chills, and I just, I, I just like, this man knows what art is supposed to be, and he's hmm. living He's living. Yeah. I want to find out what his secret is. I want to walk with Willie. I want to sit by his side. I want to hear him tell his stories. You know, I want to learn from him. And that's where my, I know it's weird, I know, but there is just something about his voice as soon as he opens his mouth and his voice, mm -hmm. it, it reaches right inside and it just wraps itself around my soul. Wow. That's really neat. I like that. I like the idea. That's really cool. Willie, if you're listening, I want to meet you. And she'll have breakfast with you in the Starlight Cafe in her backyard. I will. I'll even do the cooking. <laughs> Who does the cleaning of the dishes, though? Hmm? <laughs> Who's going to do the cleaning of the dishes, though? Well, unfortunately, me, since I was a kid. <laughs> My parents didn't have a dishwasher till I left home. Then they got it. Uh, my they parents got had it. Yeah, my parents had a dishwasher. It was called Colin and Simon, my brother and me. <laughs> That's what they always said about me. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't yeah. have one till this day, so Oh, good for you. Good for you. That's what I'm doing after we're done. I'm going to do my dishes. <laughs> well, I won't keep you any longer. I know that those dishes need doing. I shall let you go. Lorna, it's been an absolute joy and pleasure to hang out with you for the time that we've had together. And uh, I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much indeed. Simon, you're one of those wonderful little boys I love. <laughs> thank yeah, you so got, much, Lorna. You've got, you've got that spirit. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Take care of yourself. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Willie Nelson was not who I was expecting, i got to say. But why not? He's certainly an icon. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you are, be sure to check out other episodes. And if you think I should interview a certain folk and fairy tale, myths and legends, storyteller, then shoot me an email. You can find me and my work on Facebook, Simon Brooks Storyteller, on my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com, and on Instagram, Simon M. Brooks. Diamond Scree, yep, that's me, the English fella and storyteller. A shout out to Chris Jett for creating and recording and letting me use the wonderful music for my podcast. He wrote it especially. 
His band is called Blackpool Mecca. Check it out. You can help keep this podcast alive and support my craft by becoming one of my patrons. Paying anything from a dollar for an episode that you enjoy to a regular monthly subscription. And in return, you get extras, early release and exclusive content on my work. You'll find that at www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. I greatly appreciate all of you who have joined my little tribe. And if you can't join these wonderful folks, then please help me by doing something you can do. I'll be very grateful if you were to leave a review on Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find this episode. It doesn't take long and it helps not just me, but others to find and enjoy the podcast. Thanks again for being here with me. I know there are a lot of other places you could be. I do appreciate it. Be healthy, be happy, and share the stories you love. Cheers. Simon out. It's just a story. Just a story. Yeah.